Hey, uh, this morning we are going to take the next step in our journey in this series called The Gospel Shapes. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can find your way to John chapter 9. We're gonna, we'll end up uh, just spending a brief amount of time there. And then there'll be a lot of other passages of Scripture that are going to show up on the screen for you to follow along. Uh, so as, if, if you're visiting with us today, I want to give you a little background on what, we're, what we've been doing as a church in, in this series. Uh, the, the whole concept of how the gospel shapes our lives comes from this understanding that the gospel in its simplest form is that God cares so deeply for humanity that throughout all of human history, through Jesus, he is reconnecting humanity back to him. And that's the core of the gospel. And that means when we're disconnected from God because we decide to do it our own way and be our own God, we can never be fully who God created us to be. We can never actually really be fully human until we're reconnected with the one who created us. And so when we get reconnected back to God through Jesus, it influences and touches every aspect of our lives. There's nothing in our life that doesn't get impacted by the, the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is in our lives. And so we've been walking through a number of different, different topics of, of how the gospel shapes these particular areas. And so this morning we're going to talk about something that's very, a very sensitive issue, but it's a very important one for us to dialogue depending on where you're at in terms of your own understanding of God and also the way you understand yourself. And we're going to talk about how the gospel shapes sexual identity. And so before even I get into the specifics of what we're going to talk about this morning, I know that uh, in the fall when we talked about, uh, we had actually two Sundays where we talked about sexual morality and how the gospel shapes that. That was kind of like a PG-13 message. This is kind of more of like a PG message. So, so I say that because if, if uh, particularly, uh, obviously we know our kids are in children's ministry, but at middle schoolers or even high schoolers, uh, mom and dad, if they're here with you and you would prefer them not to engage this conversation yet because we are going to talk about same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, if that's something you're like, yeah, I don't know if they're ready for that, then actually in room one, uh, Pastor Lauren's right there. Uh, we have a space they can hang out during this time and you can engage that conversation later. Uh, but I would encourage you, to engage the conversation we're having uh, with them about this because if, especially if they're in public school, they've already had this conversation uh, in, in the culture that we're in. So anyway, I want you to be aware of that. But this morning as we, we talk about the, something that is, is very difficult, I, I want us to also be mindful as we're, we're talking about this. We'll, we'll walk through a lot of information. I do apologize. It may feel a little bit like a fire hose this morning of what you're going to get of information, but there's a lot of, a lot of things to cover is that anytime we talk about a sensitive issue, especially when we talk about anything in the sexual arena, there's always this voice that comes. Uh, it could be from your distant past. It could be from your recent past. It could be from your present-day reality. And it's the voice of shame that makes you want to retreat and want to pull back from what you're hearing or feel a sense of embarrassment about your life, and so you tend to disengage. Um, I want you to do everything within yourself to fight that voice today because that's not the voice of the Lord. That's the voice of the enemy trying to detract you from what God wants you to hear today because there is no shame. There's no condemnation when you surrender your life to Jesus. There is forgiveness and there is wholeness and there is health. And that's what we want to experience. And so with that understanding this morning as we're, we're walking through this, this material, we know that I'll, I'll begin with this. this. This message is not about the truth that we all understand that the Bible defines clearly the sexual relationship is in the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. That's what we understand. Anything outside of that, the Bible would classify is outside the bounds of how God has set it up for humanity to function. This, this is not that message. That's the truth about, upon which we assume we all understand. But this has to do a, a lot with our understanding of the way that we perceive 
same-sex attraction or how we identify ourselves sometimes by our own sexual orientation. And it's important for us to have this conversation. Because this is such a vast topic and there's a lot going on, I can't cover everything. And so I'm actually going to start with this. I want you to take a look at the screens. Here are some resources that you can, some of you want to just snap a quick picture because I can just walk through these, that you can read a little bit more later, okay? But four, four uh, different points of resource. There's first first book's called uh, Compassion Without Compromise, and that talks how do you love somebody, engage with somebody who is same-sex attracted or living, living in same-sex relationship without judgment. How do you balance that without compromising the truth of Scripture? The second one has to do with what the Bible actually says about homosexuality. It's very well done. It gives you an understanding of how what the Bible presents about that reality. The third one, the, th- the second, the third and fourth are very, very good. They're a little bit of a deeper dive by uh, Dr. Mark Yarhouse. It's Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Uh, that book's a little heady, but it's very good because it's something that we don't understand. We'll talk about what that is today. And then the last one is Homosexuality and the Christian. And that is really, if you have a child that's navigating same-sex attraction, that's the book that you want to get. Uh, it gives you a lot of insights that maybe you don't understand and some tools to walk through things. So those are four really, really good resources. I highly recommend any one of those if you want to get those. So this morning, I want to talk about, start by, as I mentioned, we'll be in, start in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. But here's, here's the reality of what we, what we work through. And, and a lot of the material that I'm going to use today is actually from Dr. Mark Yarhouse because he's the kind of the, the leading expert in the church on understanding what we're going to walk through today. But the question that we always come up with, especially in the church, when we talk about homosexuality or same-sex attraction, is we always ask this question, are you born that way? That's, we're always asking the cause question. The question is, how does this happen? Uh, is it a choice? Are you born this way? And this is the debate. And so the reason we do that is because somehow if we can go back and we can say, ah, it's a choice, then we address it one way. Oh, we go back and say, oh, no, you're born that way. We address it another way. And here's the reality. We get lost in that and we forget the focus is not necessarily what, how this came about, but what do we do about it now? Here's an example of this, this last week. So all of us are aware of the tragedy of the loss of nine lives last Sunday morning with Kobe Bryant and his daughter and those who, others who were on the helicopter that went down. So this last week, if you've, like, unless you've been buried in a hole, every, every media outlet has been doing things about that accident, about Kobe and his daughter and and the sadness and obviously the loss to not just a, a family, but a loss to so many people around the world. But it's interesting as watching the news and the things that unfold. And, and so here's, here every news report starts this way. Here's the update on what happened. Because what we're all looking for is to answer this question. Why? What caused this? What's the cause? Was it the pilot? Was it, it was his error? Was it the bad weather? Was it a combination? Was it, we just, and then you go, oh, you can go and kind of kick into overdrive and go, wait, what's, what caused it? What caused it? At the end of the day, when they find out what the cause of it, it's not bringing anybody back. It's not changing the reality of, of lost parents and lost children, lost spouses. That's not ha- going to change anything. But here's the thing that caught me the most last night. Kim and I were watching the news and, you know, the, the, the huge memorial that's built outside of Staples Center. And they were interviewing different people, and, and here they interviewed this little 10-year-old girl. And this is what blew me away. And she said, you know, when we saw this happen, I watched all the video of how good of a father Kobe Bryant has been over the last few years and how present he's been in his daughter's life. And this is what this 10-year-old girl said to her mom. Her, she had been estranged from her mom, or her, excuse me, her dad, and her mom hadn't talked to her dad. And she said, because of what I saw all week and how Kobe and his daughter related, I asked my mom if, if we could call my dad. 
And for the first time in how many years, I don't know, she called her dad and made a connection. And she said, if nothing else, this is what this means to me. And I thought, she understands something that a lot of people are missing. Instead of looking for the cause and understanding why and getting frustrated, getting mad at the pilot, getting mad at everybody, getting mad at God, we say, okay, what's happening in this? What's coming out of this? This is why I have you in John chapter 9. This is why we're going to start here. Because in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, this is the same exact dialogue that the disciples had with Jesus. Let me, well, this, let me read these three verses and, and talk about it for a moment. It says, and he, he passed by and he saw a blind man from birth. This is Jesus talk, they're talking about. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What was he saying to his disciples? It doesn't matter how he got here. It doesn't matter whose fault it was that he got here. The fact is, he's here. And, and he's here, why? Because God is at work even in the midst of his brokenness. And that's the message I want to start with today. In fact, the great author C.S. Lewis says this about homosexuality. He says, we must be content with ignorance regarding the cause, but focus on not the initial cause, but the final cause of God. What is God up to in the lives of people who may be struggling in this area of their life? And so to, to answer the question for those who are still asking the question, what's really the cause of it? It's both nature and nurture. Study now has proven and shown that some people make a choice and some people are born, born with a tendency. And so it's both. So we're not going to hang out there because there's questions I'd like to answer and address today. And there's six of them we're going to walk through. By the way, if you're not a really fast note taker, that's okay. Using the YouVersion app on your phone will give you all the notes I'm going to go over today. So it's the easiest way to kind of keep up. First question is this. Question number one, what is sexual identity? Before we even get too far, what is that? Well, before I even identify that, this is the truth. Same-sex attraction is real. It's a reality. It's something that more people deal with than you would even know. And that's why it's important for us to understand it. So sexual identity is this. It is labeling ourselves according to our sexual preferences. It is using our preferences in the sexual arena as the primary focus of our identity. That's how we understand that. So some distinctions and some journey within that kind of identity. And this is what happens for so many people. Uh, and again, you may be even navigating this own in, in your own life. But this is what happens with people. And this is why it's so important for us to, to dialogue and talk about this is that somebody may initially have a same-sex attraction, and that is that they, they feel emotionally or sexually towards another person of the same gender. And they feel that, and they don't know what to do with that, and they start grappling with that. And so what happens if there's no answer for them, there's a progression that continues to happen because it goes from a same-sex attraction to shifting to this thing called orientation. And eventually it will move itself without any intervention. It'll move itself to a homosexual orientation, which is when the attraction sustained over time so that a person sees themselves as oriented towards the same sex. So it moves from a feeling to now a mindset that they have about themselves. And then eventually that will lead to a full-blown shift in identity, which now becomes what we'd call the gay identity. And the gay identity, it's a cultural label that's used to describe sexual preferences. That's because the attraction is strong and sustained, leading to acknowledgement of an orientation, eventually leading to a gay identity to describe who you are as a person for yourself and for others. This is the journey that so many people are on, and, and all we end up seeing is what's above the waterline. 
And so we react not realizing there was a journey that led them to this point. And apart from any intervention of truth and compassion and love in their life, this is the trajectory that people go on. Because the only answer that they have is the answer that the culture shapes in them, not what the gospel shapes. And that's the responsibility that we have in the church. Second question to answer is question number two, what is gender dysphoria? Gender dysphoria is a real thing for people, and I've talked with people who have experienced this. Gender dysphoria is this, feeling great distress when your gender identity or your experience of yourself as male or female isn't congruent with your biological sex, where you internally feel different than what you are externally. And this is so important because so many people live in this tension and they don't know what to do about it. Shame enters in and they disengage and they pull back or they listen to voices that shape them in a direction that they shouldn't go. This is the dilemma of gender dysphoria. When you turn to the culture, the culture tells you, well, you just need to go with what you feel. And so what the, the culture will guide people into is what? You need to be the gender that you feel regardless of what your biology says. That's why there's such a huge growth in surgeries to change the biological outward appearance of people to somehow fit what's internally in them. That's the cultural answer. You should fully transition because you should feel comfortable in who you are. There's the, the, the Christian answer, which is this. Sometimes we are a little bit too naive in our approach and simply just say, well, you just need ministry and healing. Answer is true for that. But what if you pray for somebody and they pray for themselves and they go through counseling and they still feel the same way? What do you do with that? Well, then we, we, a lot of times as Christians, what do we default to? Oh, well, there's sin in your life. There's something wrong with you. Well, there's sin in all of our lives and there's something wrong with all of us. And if that were the reason, then none of us would be here. And so we have to pause for a moment and think that maybe there's, there's a reality that I don't understand that somebody's walking through that so many people are living with every day of their life. Can you imagine waking up every single day and feeling a disconnect between how people perceive you and who you feel you really are? And it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. So I'm starting with those two questions because we have to understand what is our, the identity and what is dysphoria. Those two things happen all the time. And by the way, I think I mentioned this. This is the number one issue, the number one issue of young people in middle school and high school today. And if you're not aware of that, then you need to be aware of that. Because we see it in our church, we see it on high school and middle school campuses. This is the question. This is the, the culture's driving this, this agenda in this conversation. So in the church, we have to be aware of it. Question number three, how does the gospel shape our identity? So here's the, cult, the cultural script or, or kind of the cultural expectations according to our behavior. So, so kind of the, for lack of a better term, kind of as opposed to how we shape, the, the gospel shapes our identity, the, the culture shapes our identity with what's called a gay script. This is the easiest way to put this. It's become the default for the way people see same-sex attraction. So when someone says that I'm same-sex attracted, immediately the culture defaults to where you're gay. And that's okay, that. Well, you're fine with that. You're homo, you're, your tendency is towards homosexuality, and that's okay. And what that is saying to people is this. Your attractions are central to who you are as a person. In other words, what you feel towards another person starts to shape your primary identity. It goes further to say that your attractions are at the core of who you are. So what you feel now becomes not just a feeling, but it's actually who, actually who you are. And ultimately, the behavior is a, it's a natural extension of identity, and it's an expression of who you are. And so here's what's really important to understand when somebody's navigating this. And this is where sometimes, as Christians, we miss this. 
When somebody's struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, you need to understand, they don't see it as a moral issue. They see it as an identity issue. And there's a big difference. It's an expression of who they are. And that's why when we react against somebody saying that they're gay, you don't understand. You're reacting not against a moral issue for them. This was never a moral decision in their life. This was something to kind of somehow resolve the tension inside of them to say, I have to somehow connect what I feel with who I am, so therefore I identify this way. Does that make sense? And that's why so many people run from Christians when it comes to this particular topic, because they don't feel safe, because we're coming strong at them with morality, and they're just trying to figure out who they are. And if, by the way, when you read through the Gospels, Jesus didn't come on the basis of morality with broken people. He came on the basis of grace and compassion. And that's what changed people's hearts. And we have to take the same stance. But what does a gospel-shaped identity look like? Let me just reference some verses. This is really important. Where does identity come from for us? The Bible tells us pretty clearly about that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, back at the beginning with creation. It says, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. And how did he create him? Male, female. God created genders as a way of identifying people, not their primary identity, but their gender identity. God created that. Second thing is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. The unity of the genders, male and female, actually points to the oneness of who God is. It's the nature of who God is, is between man and woman. It says, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and felt and were not ashamed. So it says that there's male, female, but when male, female come together in context of marriage, it's a reflection of the nature of who God is. So God embeds gender into creation, but he also says gender together actually reflects the nature of who God is. But here's when it comes to how the gospel really shapes our identity, and this is really important. Our status is male, female, and any other category that we use to primarily identify ourselves goes out the window. Listen to what Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 and 28 says. It says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or or female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. So this is really important. When God looks down at you, he doesn't look at you as male or female. He looks at you, what? You're a child of God. This is important. Why? Because even in the church today, we look at, Male, female, and we have two class, class or categories of people. Under the gospel, under the cross, male and female are just as broken and need just as much forgiveness as anybody else, right? So when God looks at us, he's like, no, there's no, there's no ethnicity anymore. There's no religious separation. There's no gender separation. You're all one under Christ. That's good news because there's no such th- thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And that means that we don't get wrapped up in gender being something of of value or something that that eliminates somebody from participation in certain things in the church. But what is our primary identity? The Bible's pretty clear in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. I'm sorry you're getting a fire hose, but here it comes. It says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. What are we? We're adopted. God has adopted us into his family. That's our primary identity. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're in his family. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. So what kind, of, uh, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What is our primary identity? 
I'm a child of God. And I like to say this is really important. Even let's get more specific. I'm not a son or a daughter. I'm a child. You may be a son or a daughter, but to God, he's not looking at one way at daughters and another way at sons. He's looking at his kids. That's the way God views us. And I wanted to start to hit that on that third question because that is what shapes our understanding of who we are. How do we self-identify? We don't. We God-identify. God determines our identity. And aren't you glad that God determines our identity? Because when we try to do it, we mess it up. It doesn't work. We don't get to choose that. God gets to choose that. But that still means there's tension for many people. So question number four. What do I do if I know someone navigating identity or dysphoria issues? Because chances are almost every person in this room knows of somebody if you haven't personally navigated this in your life. Four things I just want to touch on. Remember first, someone navigating sexual identity or gender dysphoric issues is not necessarily trying to deconstruct norms or destroy Christianity. They are just trying to survive. <laughs> I want you to hear me on that. Because when, when somebody shows up at a gay rights festival representing the church or Christianity and they come with hate speech, they've missed the point. Because most people that I've talked to who are living in a homosexual issue, they're not about destroying the church. They're simply trying to figure out their life, which is true for all of us. So we have to take a stance. This is not somehow we compromise the truth, but we need to dial back a little bit, which this leads to the second thing. We need to remove the exclamation points from our conversation. We, we're so dogmatic. And if we would just take a moment to understand where somebody's coming from, because here is the key, the key thing. Truth is truth when it lands and someone understands it, not just because you proclaimed it. Because you can give instruction to somebody, and if they don't understand it, they miss the point completely. And if someone's blinded because we're coming at them with a flashlight pointed in their eye instead of a flashlight on their path to show them the way, they'll never know the truth because they've been blinded by it. Jesus didn't come to blind people by the truth. He came to them to show the truth. And we have to make sure of that. Third thing is help, help them remove the period from, the, from their identity with the comma. Sexual identity or orientation uh, does not have to be the definitive end for anybody. So when somebody says, I am, and they are adamant about it, not in arguing, but this is have to, who I have to be, then there needs to be this compassion that helps somebody understand that. Say, you know what? That's not the end result. That's not the final verdict on your life. Because God may have something else for you. He may have something else he wants to do in your life. And one of the things that we have to do, and this is really hard for us, is we have to come down from the mountain and be in the valley with people. We have to work hard at that. Don't try to fix people. God fixes people. We don't. And if we understand that, just be with them. Man, I can't tell you this is so important. I saw this firsthand. We are so wanting to fix the problems in people's lives because we feel better about ourselves and then we can walk away and not worry about it. But what if they still have a problem? So here's what we do. No offense to anybody, but this is what we do in Christian circles. And there is a place for this, and we have to do this. When my dad went through cancer surgery a number of years ago, we prayed we laid hands on him and we anointed him with oil. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed. We called the elders of the church and we prayed. And they did tests and he still had prostate cancer. So then what did he do? He went and had surgery. And I remember the day of the surgery, our family gathered at the hospital and we had lots of people that showed up from the church. And some of them were very gracious and very compassionate. And others, honestly, I just wanted to slap them across the face. Because they walked into the waiting room 
and they wanted to do spiritual warfare right in the, in the waiting room, and they wanted to pray, and that the surgery wasn't going to have to happen, and it was so disruptive to my parents and to our family, finally they left. Because I wanted to say, do you think that we haven't done this? And do you think we're going to stop praying even though he's going into surgery? No. But you know what we need more than anything? Just be with us. And let God fix the problem of cancer. What if we just were with people? What if somebody who's dealing with an issue like this or has come out and says, I am gay and they're living in a gay relationship, what if you were just with them and they experienced love before they experienced judgment? There might be room for something to happen in their lives. You might actually start to erase the period at the end of their identity and make room for what God wants to do beyond the comma if we're to live our lives that way. Please hear me. I'm not trying to, to pass judgment on anybody, but I've been in the church long enough. I believe that God heals. I believe that God transforms. But when we pray and he doesn't do it, you know what's left? Compassion. And Jesus functioned in compassion for people. And if, especially for things that we don't understand. That's where compassion comes in. I don't understand, but I can feel with you. I can be present with you. I can have compassion for you. Question number five. What do I do if I'm navigating identity or dysphoria issues myself? So here's three things that you need to uh, avoid basing your identity on. This is really important. Avoid basing your identity on what you feel. What you feel cannot be your primary identity. The reason why is what you feel changes all the time. Think about it. From one day to the next, you and our feelings and emotions are all over the map. But if we start to identify that, we will we'll go crazy. Because we won't, have a, we won't have an anchor of who we really are. We'll just be reacting to what we feel in the moment. The second thing is avoid basing your identity on what you do. Never, ever, ever in, in the way that God works does he ever look at a person and identify them by a job. He doesn't say, okay, well, this is what you are because you perform this. We never, never identify by what we do. And the third thing is we never can identify by who we love. This is really important. Because in, in our culture today, the, the mantra is what? Love is love. But you, you, when what's being said underneath that is that I identify by who I choose to love. I want you to think about how dangerous that is. I'm a heterosexual male, faithfully married to my wife, coming up, we're, we're 28 years, we'll be getting close to 30, which is a huge milestone for us. But I don't identify myself primarily as a heterosexual male married to my wife. I don't do that. Because I don't, I don't identify myself by loving Kim, because what happens if that love fails on either side? I lose who I am. I don't identify by who I choose to love. Why? Because I'm letting that person tell me who I am. And there's only one person who tells me who I am. And that's God himself. And the last thing I'd want to do is put that on somebody that your love for me identifies all of who I am and my identity. That is too much for any human being to bear. So ultimately, that's why the Bible, and I'm, I, I am convinced of this, when the scriptures are written down, God embedded this in John, John's writings that the Bible says, doesn't say love is love. It says God is love. He identifies what love is. He's the ultimate one that we draw our identities from. So our tension is this. Here's the question. When we're, if you're navigating the tension within you about identity and dysphoria issues is this. Are my feelings, emotions, or sexual attractions, or self-identification, is that how I'm gonna, what I'm going to weigh my life on? 
on who I'm attracted to or how I feel internally, or am I going to weigh my life on the values, convictions, and commitment to Jesus and his word? One changes, the other doesn't. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. And here's, here's the thing, and man, this is what breaks my heart, because as a pastor, I've seen it too many times. If you're here today and you are struggling in this area and you haven't told anybody, I'm going to tell you something. There's two things that you need to know that is so important. These are the two avenues that most people take in the church when they're dealing with it. They either isolate or they disconnect. And here's the voice you might be hearing in your head. If you're thinking about isolating, you're hearing this voice that says, I can't tell anyone about this. I can't. I can't tell anybody because if I tell anybody, they're going to judge me, they're going to hate me, they're going to push me away. So you just suffer in silence. Or maybe you're thinking about or disconnecting yourself from people, and this is what you believe. I have to leave the church to navigate this because the church isn't safe. I can't tell people because they'll judge me. And I've shared this story. This happened in our church five years ago with a celibate lesbian couple who were seeking to find answers for their, their same-sex attraction, and they outwardly looked as though the part and they felt judged by people in our church. And they sat down with Kim and I on the way out the door and said, we love you, we love what God's doing here, but we can't be here. Because when we walk in on Sunday morning, people look at us weird. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody in our church, but it broke my heart. I said, no, 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 don't disconnect. Thank God they actually went into another church that was actually a good, strong Bible-leading church where they found place they could navigate what they were walking through. But I say that because here's the, here's the deal for Antioch. This church is a safe place to nav navigate your sexual identity. You need to hear that. And the question that all of us will ask with you is what does Jesus say about your sexual identity? That's the question. What does he say? He has something to say about that that's very important for each one of us to hear. And then there's a final question, and that's this. What do we do as a church to help people navigate this? How do we as a church take a stance where we're not compromising the biblical foundation of, of sexuality? We are, we are rooted in the Bible, and I said that at the beginning. This is, again, not that message, but how do we make room for somebody who's navigating this? Here's the first thing. Value singleness in the church. What do I mean by that? Obviously, I know we're guilty of this, but in most churches, everything's catered for people who are married or on their way to marriage or coming out of marriage. It's all about marriage. What about somebody who's single? Here's the question to ask. Is there a place for celibate gay individuals who are single in the church? Did you hear what I just said? Is there, is there a place for somebody who is oriented and they feel attracted to the same sex, but they're not acting on it, and so they remain single in their life because they don't feel attracted to the opposite sex? Is there room in the church? You better believe there's room in the church for somebody like that. In fact, I know that there's people in the church today, and I'm not saying for our church, but lots of people that I know that are in the church today that fall into that category. They keep praying for God to deliver them from the feeling, but the feeling hasn't gone away, so they still don't act on it, but they haven't chosen to get married either because really, they feel like a fraud doing that. So what, what do they do? They remain single and celibate before God. Man, I admire people like that because they're simply trying to be obedient and following Jesus in their life. Second thing is acknowledge the truth of creation with the reality of the fall. God created genders and sexual identities, but the sin of humanity has touched everything. Everything. So before we come in guns blazing and passing judgment on people, realize that we're all tainted by sin. 
We're all tainted by sin. And that means we're, if you were to ask the same question about cause that we ask about homosexuality and a gay orientation, ask that about every issue in your life. Every challenge you've had, every failure you've had, ask, where did that come from? And some of it is nature, sinful nature in all of us. Other is nurture. It's the environment that you grew up in. And sometimes it's both. But you notice that Jesus never came to somebody and said, boy, where did that happen? How did, how did you get to this point? How did you mess up your life so royal? Let's go. No, he never did that. He just comes in what he forgives. As he dies on the cross and has compassion for people. That's his approach. The other thing that we need to be aware of if we're going to make the church a safe place is to minister below the waterline. Instead of reacting against the tip of the iceberg, we have to demonstrate our behavior to get to the deeper questions, the deeper questions of faith, acceptance, eternity, not the tip of the iceberg, which is somebody's sexual orientation or behavior. Because there's a reason underneath the waterline for them getting to that point and understanding what that looks like. So I want to I want to close with this, um, and I'll pray. And, and I, I want to be sensitive to what's going on in the room because I want to I want to talk to to two groups of people, maybe three groups of people in the room. <laughs> the first one is this: maybe you're here, and you might even struggle with what I'm saying because you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're thinking, "Man, Pastor John, you're really you're kind of walking the line. You're you're getting pretty close there to being one of those churches that affirms homosexuality." Not even close. And what if that's kind of where you're at and that's what you were thinking? I believe that God's wanting to work some, some deep, wor- a deep work of compassion in your life. And that means that, that there's maybe people in your life that you know that you've struggled with and you've dis- distanced yourself from them because this is the lifestyle that they've chosen. It might even be a family member and you, you've, you've just completely ostracized them. If that's where you're at, I'm, I'm going to pray for you that the Holy Spirit would soften your heart. But, but beyond that, what I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to read through the first four books of the New Testament called the Gospels. And as you read through those, I want you to watch how Jesus reacted to broken people. And you're going to discover something profound. Jesus was far more harsh on religious people than he was broken people. He was harsh on the ones that knew better, not the ones that didn't. And if we're, our goal of our life is to be like Jesus, then our posture needs to be the same. And I will pray that as you read through those four Gospels that God will begin to shape your idea of what does it mean to care for somebody who's walking through these challenges. And maybe there's a second category of people and, and you, your heart is broken because you have a family member or a close friend who's walking through this and whatever stage they're in, maybe they've actually full-blown, they've come out of the closet, they've embraced a lifestyle and you're heartbroken because you love them and you know that's not what God has for their life. But you're struggling with this, which is, I have to tell them the truth and yes, you do and, and here's what I've discovered for most people who are in this, who are connected with Christians. They already know what you think. They do. And I have, this is one of the number one questions I have about this. I have a friend who's gay and they're going to get married. Should I go to the wedding? Yes, you should. Now, you're not going to stand up and say, yeah, I'm supporting this. I'm 100% behind this marriage and I'm going to, no, you're there to support your friend. And you showing up at that wedding demonstrates to them that you love them. But you not being at that wedding, you know what it does? it says that now you're going to disconnect from them. And now what you've lost is relationship. Another thing in the Gospels that you read is Jesus 
ate with sinners. He hung out with them. People are like, whoa, wait a second. Yeah, that's one of the reasons the religious leaders hated Jesus. You know when Matthew got saved, the tax collector that everybody hated, he threw a party and invited all his tax-collecting, drunken, prostitute friends to come hang out with Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Oh, no, I can't go there. Because people might think if I go, I'm endorsing their lifestyle. No, Jesus loved people. He loved people. So he went. So if that's you and, and you're struggling, realize the truth of your love and compassion being present with them will speak volumes more than you trying to make sure they understand. Because if your, your love will eventually lead for them to ask the truth. If you cut it off, there's no relationship. And if you were la here last week, so we talked about relationships, the key. Relationships, the key. Ultimately, at the end of all things, you know what God will do? The ultimate relationship will be severed when people reject God. But who, who severs that relationship? The person in their choice to reject God, and God has given them all the opportunity their whole life. And if they reject him, then ultimately they get the outcome that they desired. But that's what God is so, it says that God is patient. What? He doesn't want anybody to perish. That's why compassion and love and mercy comes into play. And then the last category, and that is if you're here today and you are you are struggling in this area. And this is something that has created tension in your life internally. It's created tension for people around you. You felt judged. You don't know what to do. I want you to hear loud and clear. The God of the universe loves you. He has created you as much as he's created any other person. And to understand that means that God's desire for you is to have a primary identity that is child of God. That supersedes any sexual identity, any job identity, any gender identity. It's the identity he wants to give you. It's what he wants you to have in your life. And the way that that identity comes and basically <laughs> supersedes all other identities is what we just read earlier. That when you engage with Jesus, what happens is when you trust him with your life, you go through, in reality, what's considered a spiritual adoption. That the God of the universe says, I adopt you into my family, and now I tell you, above all other things, above everything else that you would do in your life, you are my child. And that's what drives your life. And that's what identifies who you are. And that's what shapes your perception of yourself and everybody else around you. Because this is the one thing that goes beyond every single stereotype or self-identity that we can come up with. Child of God lasts forever. Anything that we give to ourselves is only temporary. So I would never want to identify with anything that will only last for a season or a lifetime, but I will identify with the very thing that will last forever. Would you close your eyes? I'm going to pray here in a moment. Again, being sensitive to what, what's going on in each person's life. If there's anyone here who has felt the judgment of a Christian or the disdain of the church because of decisions you've made in the area of sexual orientation. I'm gonna, today I'm going to ask you that you would extend forgiveness to people who have done that to you. That maybe that person or that church doesn't fully understand what you're going through, doesn't somehow justify or mean that you're to stay in the place that you're at forever, but maybe the misunderstanding or the lack of understanding of people 
has led to you feeling that pain in your life and maybe it's caused you to withdraw. That I want you to know just as Jesus did 2,000 years ago when, when he encountered someone who was struggling with their own identity. In fact, it's really interesting that there's a woman who Obviously, we know that's the woman. This is the only name we have for the woman caught in adultery, the woman who was engaging with se in sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, and she's caught in that act, and she's brought before Jesus. She had an identity. It's an identity that her culture had given her. And the identity was promiscuous. The identity was adulterous. The identity was prostitute. And that's what she lived under every single day, and that's why they caught her, because they knew the kind of person that she was. And in John chapter 8, when Jesus encounters her, he doesn't call her any of those things. In fact, what he says to her is the very thing that everybody else had done. Her whole, probably adult life was they had condemned her, condemned her, condemned her. And then Jesus said to all of those who were gathered, Hey, yeah, the perfect one, you get to throw the first stone. And as the story goes, they, one by one, started dropping the stones to, to walk away because they had no grounds left to pass judgment on her because all of them were guilty. All of them were sinners. All of them were broken. And the only one left was Jesus. And if you're reading the story, you might think, okay, well, here it comes. Here it comes. Now, he... They didn't condemn her because they're not perfect, but Jesus, he's perfect, and here it comes, and here, here's what comes. Jesus says, then the God of the universe, the perfect God of the universe who's never sinned, says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. But then he says this. What he didn't do is he didn't condemn her, but what he did do is he did forgive her. And then he said this. He took the period at the end of her identity and the end of her life and said, it's now a comma. And after that comma comes this phrase. Now you can leave the life of sin you've been living. Now you can actually be the person I created you to be. Regardless of all the labels that you've given yourself, a lot of the, the labels and the identities that people have given you, you can actually be the person you're created to be, which supersedes what you feel and what other people say about you because now you belong to me. You're a child of God. And if that's where you're at today, and, and maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, and the answer to your struggle isn't to try to fix it. The answer to your struggle is to meet somebody named Jesus. To allow his spirit to come and live inside of you. To read about him in the scriptures that were inspired by God to show you what God looks like and how he responds to broken people. And so all of the things that you've ever felt or you've ever thought about what Christianity is about maybe has been skewed and misunderstood because you've never met the author. You've never met the one who started the whole thing. His name is Jesus. And he's here today and he wants to meet you right where you're at. He wants to touch your heart. He wants to change your soul. He wants to help you to see who you really are. So if that's what your desire is today, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to ask you that you begin to pray. Prayer is simply talking to God. He hears your words. He hears your thoughts. He's present, whether you see him or not, because he's not going to come walking in the room, but his spirit is at work in you right now. So you tell God that you'd like to surrender 
who you are, who you self-identified as, over to Jesus and let him begin to shape your life. So Lord Jesus, we invite you now to help us not to somehow select our identity by what we feel or what we do or who we love or Lord, what we're drawn to. I pray, Lord, that we would take a step back, all of us, and realize that before you there aren't labels, there aren't orientations, there's just children. And so, Lord, we want to come and surrender as children before you today. And, Lord, ask for your mercy and your compassion and your forgiveness. And then the result would be, Lord, would you help us to live out what it means to be your child, to be fully loved, to be fully accepted, to be part of the family, not to be an outsider, but to be an insider, to belong. Would you let us live that reality and that identity out because it's the one that comes from you and it's the one that can never change and the one that lasts forever. So, Lord, those, for those who are for the first time making that decision, would you give them the courage to now walk that out in their lives? We thank you for your presence here today, Jesus. Now help us to walk this out in our lives in your name.